Eddie and his relationship with the team just not not untenable, but certainly like ran its course, it felt. You speak to the players and you get the feedback and I think that was how the team also felt about it as well. I'm really excited to see how Quay Cooper comes back, actually. You know, out of an Achilles injury for Australia, I think if he's fit, he plays. And he's just dynamite to watch, isn't he? Welcome back to part two of the Champagne Rugby podcast with Hugo Monnier. So what, what was that transition then? Retiring in 2015, how did you, what did you then think with your career? Obviously, you've just had that career, the, all the moments. How did you then decide, right, I'm going to go into be a rugby pundit? And how did you kind of get involved in all of the TV? So well, I, I fell into rugby and I kind of fell into punditry. Um, so I signed my last contract for Harlequins, age 29, signed a three-year deal. And I remember I made the conscious decision, and it's probably why I signed a three-year. I said to myself that if at the end of three years my body's feeling good and I feel that I can play good rugby, um, then I'll carry on playing if the club want me. And if not, I'm going to spend three years trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so in that first year, I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. I flipping didn't have a clue. And so I then spent time trying to work out um, <laughs> what I didn't want to do. Do you know, if you had like a bad ex, uh, yeah. you realise, oh, okay, I definitely don't want that in my life again. Like, as soon as you see the signs, you're like, right, you know, stay <laughs> The red so, flags. Yeah, exactly. So I looked at the red flag jobs for me and I was like, oh, I didn't fancy that. I didn't want to do that. And then I actually chatted to um, <clears throat> Nick. So I, I, I did some media work. If you're injured, you know, you can come and be a guest and all the rest of it. And then I remember chatting to Nick Mullins, who I now work with, brilliant commentator. We went for a coffee in Cafe Nero in Twickenham. And he said, what do you want to do when you retire? I said, oh, well, I've got options to stay at Harlequins. And there was a couple of French clubs that were keen on me. So I said, oh, I don't know. And he says, I reckon you'll be good at punditry, I think. So he asked me a few questions, how to explain a few things and this, that and the other. Then in my final year, I um, first game of the season, scored a try at Twickenham against London Irish Wasps. 15 minutes into the game and I actually tore my tendon off the bone in my groin and I tore my pubis and so I had surgery I was out for three months um so I had a bit of time off and so I um did a load of games for BT Sport commentary and I actually the only thing I wanted to know or figure out is whether I would enjoy it because I thought if I enjoy this I reckon I could be okay at it because you're having fun. You're doing something that you really like. And I loved it. And so I spoke to Connor, I think October, November 2014 and said, this season's going to be my last season. Because it was with, within my control and I knew that I was retiring, it made the process easy. But some players, unfortunately, go to matches and they get a career-ending injury. They're just not ready for it, not prepared. I gave myself an opportunity to be as prepared as I could be. Um, and I found something that I really enjoyed. And so the way I see it is that I've moved on, but not that far away. And I love what I do. I'm at Six Nations games, you know, you're at Premiership finals, Heine Cup finals. I've done two World Cups. You're at these big arenas, like as a fan, but in a professional capacity, watching and witnessing and absorbing the atmospheres of all these tremendous moments. I speak about my own individual moments. Now I'm watching the moments of 
other people, but enjoying it as much whilst talking about it. So I love it. Like I truly, truly love what I do. I've always been a bit of a undercover like rugby geek. Like loved analysis. Love like love watching rugby. I've just been in conference today with World Rugby and some like international coaches and referees and. We've literally spoke about rugby for about four or five hours, and it's wicked. Like, I, I, I love it. I, I really enjoy it. That's the dream, lad. That's the dream. And who would be like someone in punditry? Who's the best pundit in the world, do you think? Besides Hugo Mania. <laughs> hey, um, see, the questions like this get me into trouble, won't they? Um, I, I respect pundits that put the effort in like work hard and it shows i think there's like any industry there's some great pundits and there's some average ones as well and you can for me i think i can separate and there's a difference between being a good pundit and being a good broadcaster to be a good broadcaster essentially means you're able to talk well do you mean like speak well string sentences together, have good conversations. Punditry is having a depth to your understanding, your knowledge. So when you make a statement, the ability to explain it, explain it clearly to, to an audience. At the World Cup, that audience could be six nations, we're talking 10 million people in a really short space. Like when you're commentating live, you probably don't have the ability to talk for more than 30 seconds. So how can I explain the pictures, what you're seeing in a concise and palatable manner. That's the best of, that's that's where you become a brilliant broadcaster and a brilliant pundit because you're speaking really clearly, people understand it, but your depth of knowledge is also absolutely fantastic as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate to work with some really, really good pundits, really good pundits. Yeah, and what do you prefer then? Your being, um, who's your favourite? Who's my favourite? Uh, I I love listening to Brian O'Driscoll, to be honest. Of course you I, do. You're Irish. Of course you do. <laughs> I think, um, who else do I like? Yeah, Brian O'Driscoll. And uh, I actually think Austin Healy is very good as well. Yeah, I had to say Austin Healy as well, though. He's definitely up there. One of the best. And Brian O'Driscoll is obviously quite good. Yeah, yeah. I tell you who'd yeah. like to see doing more more punditry would be uh, Nick Cummins, the Badger. He always, <laughs> he always used to crack me up. Right. He's hilarious, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That dude has got stories for days. You should get him on the podcast. <laughs> we should reach out reach out to the, the Honey Badger. Yeah, get the Honey Badger and Mac Hansen together. That'd be some duo now. <laughs> how, cool, how cool is Mac Hansen? Oh, it's insane. Do you see um, Johnny Sexton's Instagram story? Yep, with his son and, and Mac. Yeah. Just like, just just Mac being Mac. Do you know what I mean? It's, he's some rugby player as well. Wow. Oh, he's such a good link man, isn't he? As a winger, like he's, he's completely different to a lot of other guys. You know, like you have these power athletes who are just trying to get over the line. Whereas Mac can obviously get over the line. But he's kind of more linking the play, more arty kind of than freak of nature, isn't he? The Ireland, yeah, Ireland have the best skilled back three in the Six Nations. 
You know, you look at James Lowe, his work in the air, I think defensively his sounds, his kicking game, Hugo Keenan, for me, is probably the best fullback in the world. His all-round game doesn't really have much of a weakness. Then Mac, you know, that, but also saw Hugo and James Lowe brilliant finishers as well. Mac's a brilliant finisher, but his handling and his vision, and to, to your point, his ability to link plays, you know, against Scotland last weekend, his down that 15 metre channel on the right hand side how he steps up as first receiver steps off his right foot squares up the defence and then puts a miss pass across to Conan for the try he does a lot in a short period of time which puts defences under pressure whilst preserving space for attack you know yeah. he, he does everything what he would want inside him if he was on the wing and having that ability yeah, honestly, I the, the Irish back three. I mean, the Irish team at the minute are just yeah, they're insanely good. Yeah, like I remember uh, Eddie Jones when he came in to coach England said you need five world class players to win a World Cup, and he listed them out who he thought it could be for England. Like I think at the moment in Ireland, you definitely have five, six, maybe even seven fellas who are in the top three players in the world in their positions. <sighs> Yeah, I think you can make a case for the whole front row. I think second row is very, very strong. Very strong. The back row, Caelan Doris, is flying. you got uh, Van der Fleer, who's the world's player of the year. Um, nine and ten, uh, mega. I think Gary Ringrose deserves so much respect. Hugo Keenan's absolutely up there. Um, I mean, I don't know how many I've listed there, but it's definitely more than five. But uh, but it's, it's funny, like we talk about individuals and their ability to be world-class. That, of course, helps the team. But Ireland's biggest strength is the team. Like, the level of cohesion. They're just relentless, underpinned by, I think they must be one of the fittest teams because their work rate to reload, be in position... But you forget in rugby, if you're on the floor, you know you're out of the game. You're out of the game. So that's with, as a ball carrier, if you're on the floor, like the only thing you can do is place the ball. If you're not touching the ball or tackling someone, if you if you make a tackle and you lie on the floor, there's nothing you can do to affect. You can't play the ball. You can't even try and poach the ball. You're out of the game. So Ireland's ability to regenerate and get players up off the floor and onto onto their feet, a tackle defence is is a real point of difference of theirs. Another thing I find interesting is if you look at the 2015 England coaching setup that we exited the pool stage, there all the coaches are now in Ireland and absolutely doing a great, fantastic job. It's yeah, just, just crazy. Yeah, Stu Lancaster's gone on to win multiple Pro 14s, um, Heineken Champions Cups. Got Andy Fowle, who's the head coach of the world's best team. Uh, Mike Katz running the attack. Ireland's attack seems to be the envy of everyone. Um, you've got um, Graham Roundtree, who's head coach of Munster. And it's like... But once again, you know, I was talking earlier from a large perspective about fortune and sometimes timing. Like in 20, like 2015, obviously, massive disappointment for England. Uh, go out of the pool stages of a home World Cup is deeply, deeply upsetting, disappointing. But 
I love the way in which those coaches have like bounced back because no one can tell me they're not good coaches. <laughs> maybe just maybe it was the wrong fit. Maybe it was the players that just quite simply um, underperformed. I, I I don't know, but that obviously just wasn't their time. But they've gone on, healed, found themselves in new environments, and just excelled. But as an Englishman watching like Fass make Ireland <laughs> as good as what they are, I'm so pleased for him. It's brilliant. But I wish oh. in another parallel universe we could have foreseen his quality, his talent. He was my defensive coach at England. Him and Sean Edwards, the two best defensive coaches I ever had. My word, the way in which they empower you, make you feel, make you want to go out and defend for them is an emotion that no other coach has ever given me. So when I see the success of Ireland, A, I'm not surprised, and B, I'm like envious of that feeling which he gives those Irish players because it's clear for everyone to see, isn't it? What do you think? Uh, what do you think that conversation was between um, at the dinner table with the Farrell family between Owen and his dad there after the match? Um, well, I guess the next day was an easy distraction because it was Mother's Day, so it wasn't about Owen or Andy; it was about their mother. <laughs> so that's quite that's that's a good icebreaker. And um, Owen has has kids, and you know that Andy's grandkids, and they were over, but. I think they're so well used to it now that they probably have quite a good ability of being able to separate family time from work. Everyone needs that distinction, don't they? And yet they're both rugby nuts and love it and would have analysed and spoken about it. Uh, and as disappointed, Owen would have been as England captain. You can't help but be like just happy for your dad. You know, your dad the number one team in the world, Grand Slam champions, to do it on Patrick's Day weekend against England. You know, you've, you know, there's there's a part of you, you wouldn't be human if you weren't happy for your dad. We actually said it to my mother. Uh, we were watching the match. We were like, if we were in that scenario, who would you support? And my mother said, if she was English, like going Farrell's mother, she was like, I'd want England to win and I'd want Andy to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... You know, it's it's Owen's mum, but it's Andy's wife. <laughs> and a draw does nothing. A draw means Ireland win the, the Six Nations, but not a grand slam. You know, it's good. So there's, I don't know. I think they're so well rehearsed in this scenario that it's probably just not even awkward. It's just not even awkward. It's just, it's, it's what it is. They're both such good professionals that they can cope with it a lot better than perhaps how we imagine it to be. 100%. 100%. Now, someone you mentioned a while ago, and I think we're all talking up Ireland, but Sean Edwards is obviously in charge of the, or involved in the French team. Like, do you think Ireland are really favourites for the Grand Slam, Hugo, or for the World Cup? World Cup. On, 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 not... There's part of the Six Nations, but last summer Ireland went to New Zealand and won a three-test series. That's unbelievable. After losing the first test, literally unheard of. That in itself is enough evidence to know that they have to be one of the favourites, if not the favourites. 
But because of the global calendar, you know, we live in this bubble of, oh, aren't we great in the Northern Hemisphere? You know, we've got three of the five, um, six nations, nations in the top five world rankings. Like we're, It's great to have the conversation Northern Hemisphere where we're like, we're not chasing New Zealand, South Africa. We're, we're chasing Ireland and France. It's good that it feels a bit closer to home. But when we get to rugby, rugby championship, we'll get a stark reminder how good New Zealand and Africa are. I think South Africa, I know France, it's, it's, it's in France and they're a brilliant side in my word. They showed it at Twickenham just a couple of weeks ago. But South Africa are just... And, you know, the, South Africa are just the absolute juggernaut. When, when they get it right, they get it really right and they've been very good. And New Zealand just, just can't be underestimated. Australia will be good now. They got Eddie. Australia generally quite good and competitive, but with Eddie Jones coming in, Argentina. So I don't know. Ireland, of course, they're in the hot seat and they've been able to wear that number one tag really, really well. But the Southern Hemisphere, we've not won a World Cup in the Northern Hemisphere for 20 years, you know. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, to be honest, as an Ireland fan, like, I still think it's the most open World Cup ever. But I think, like, France and New Zealand can score these magic tries from anywhere, like Penno did against Ireland. Ireland don't have that strike power. Yeah. South Africa and England are massive, what's it called, massive packs, and they can get us behind the gain lines, you know? So, like, that's power that we can't bring as well. And then, like, Argentina can obviously get the D-line going. Scotland can attack minor. I think every team has their own competitive thing. Ireland are obviously very consistent across the board, but other teams can bring 10 out of 10s, you know, whereas we, we're just very good at everything, kind of. You're very good at everything. And New Zealand, I think there's this myth about New Zealand. Yes, they play wonderful rugby. They've consistently done that, and they've probably been the attacking model which everyone's tried to copy for the last 15 years. But you forget their power game. Like, people forget how abrasive and how destructive they can be when they want to go to it. I remember in 2017 when the Lions played them and all the conversation was about, oh yeah, they can score from everywhere. And they went through the front door with their big forward pack. And I was like, and it was a stark reminder. And they still have that. They still have that. Like you look at a Brody Retallick or a Scott Barrett or an RD Surveyor, like come off it, man. Do you know what I mean? Like they, 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 if they want to go to that game, they, they can do it. They've got Jordy Barrett, Borden Barrett, Tuvasashek, Greek Oyani. <laughs> it's wild, but that's the beauty of this World Cup that we've got. That oh, it's going to be a cracking it, one. Yeah, to call it now, and then you look at the draw. Unfortunately, the side that Ireland are on. South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, like it's bonkers, man. Like whoever wins this World Cup, especially comes from that side of the draw. I'm not sure if there's been a more deserving World Cup winner. It's crazy. Like I think there's a lot. I know World Rugby said they won't do it again, but like calling it three years out, the yeah. World Cup pools is crazy. Looks just so crazy. You know, the top five teams in the world are all on the same side of the draw. Like, yeah, bonkers. It's bonkers, like, you know, and all it will give us some great matchups in the pools. And then as the teams from the other side of the draw come through, they will be strong. You know, I have no doubt about it. Like, 
England will come good, I think, you know. Like yep. likes Argentina can do it, you know. But I think calling it three years out for rugby, they need to get that changed, you know. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think some of it was down to COVID. Um, and that's the kind of legacy of it. But yeah, we, we won't see that again, I'm certain. What um what are your thoughts about the whole England situation with Eddie Jones coming out and everything like similar sort of results but since the last six nations with under Steve Borthwick? Um hey, it's obviously disappointing. Two out of five in the six nations for a nation of our resources and player pool and power infrastructure. Obviously it's just yeah, it's just underwhelming, isn't it? But it's, and I know England fans are sick and tired of hearing this word, but England are a team that's building. Um, Steve Balfour, he's been in charge for seven weeks, five matches. Um, the France game was an anomaly, like, especially when you look at the improved performance against Ireland, but to concede 50 odd points at home, that felt like, I think to a large degree, the team that was together in the Six Nations won't ever be together again. I think that might be it. Um, but what happened, what, what I find is the pre-season leading to World Cup is a bit of a, is a bit of a leveller because you get two and a half, three months together. But you also got, got to consider, we've mentioned Ireland, France, they're four years into this journey. You know, they started building from 2019. Um, you know, Fabian Gautier was implemented into that World Cup coaching group, knowing he'll take over literally after the final game for France, and he's been on this journey. So you've got other teams who have had longer time together, four years together in their planning and bringing through players and blood in them. We're trying to condense all of that into a matter of months. So none of these are excuses or yeah, or, or me trying to pardon what's happened because we still should be doing better. I'm convinced we have lots of good players that aren't playing well. And I hope by the time we get to the World Cup that the players, if our players play to their potential, I think we can take on anyone, but truly do. You know, you look at the potential, look at the front row, British line front row, Maritoja British line in the second row. The back row is like phenomenally good. Young, exciting scrum half. Owen Farrell or Marcus Smith or George Ford at 10. Manu or Ollie Lawrence at 12. Elliot Daly or Henry Slade at 13. And then Freddie Stewart, who's so solid. Anthony Watson, Max Malins, Aaron Dorn, like They're all good players, but not playing to their potential. But if we can get that sense of cohesion, have a real understanding of how we want to play, which I think needs to be more expressive than what we've shown so far, because set-piece, good defence and a kicking game is just not going to be good enough to win a World Cup because all the top teams can do that and more. So, yeah, Steve Borthwick's got a lot on his plate and not a lot of time, but I'm still I'm still fairly certain that we can, that we can be really competitive and more than what we've seen in the Six Nations. So you mentioned that, that with Ireland and France, they've had four years building with the coaches. Therefore, don't you think it was a bit of a prim premature decision replacing Eddie so far, so close to the World Cup? It may, two ways of looking at it. it. It may have been overdue. You know, what if it happened 
after the last Six Nations where we only won two out of five, that had given Steve Borthwick 18 months. So it may have even been too late. Um, I felt um, that Eddie and his relationship with the team just not not untenable, but certainly like ran its course, it felt. You speak to the players and you get the feedback and I think that was how the team also felt about it as well. Obviously, it puts you in a compromising position because you need to bring together a new coaching staff, a new philosophy, re-energise the players, find a sense of confidence, a new way of playing. That's the job. But it's not like the RFU or Steve Borthwick or anyone went in, um, employed and went, what so would the World Cup say? Nine, you, you want me to do all this in nine months? Like we were well aware of the challenge, and it's a massive challenge. But you can either be intimidated by challenges or invigorated by it. And I think for Steve Borthwick, he's obviously knows it's a big task, but he's not going to shy away from it. He's not going to be intimidated by it. Just wants to get on with it. So do you think? Um, sorry. So do you think the um, the firing of Eddie was inevitable? Um, it depends what your metric for um, for a sacking is or what constitutes a sacking and I think in international rugby it's probably results isn't it and we've seen um, the, the results weren't good enough um, and the performance levels weren't good enough were they so when you have those two and you start to hear that I don't know relationships might be strained or perhaps just need a new direction then you kind of you're left with very limited options. Do you double down or triple down? Because uh, you know Eddie was scrutinised after last Six Nations, scrutinised after the Six Nations before that, um, scrutinised after Autumn Internationals. It's you either double down and stick all your chips that it's just gonna come good, or you be bold and take this decision which they've done and. I guess it's one of those and, you know, it was split opinion as to whether it's the right thing to do or not. The reality is the situation which we're in is the situation which we're in. And, you know, um, I think everyone's aware of the size of the challenge. It's just about how we go about trying to implement how we want to play and getting that sense of understanding and cohesion in a very short period of time. Something you just said there about understanding cohesion. I asked you before about the Harlequins DNA versus England rugby DNA. Now, England are obviously after bringing in Bortwick and uh, Sir Steve. So, yeah, Kevin Sinfield. Obviously, you have Bortwick and Sinfield come in from Leicester, who played a high-kicking game, set-piece defence, and then they brought in Nick Evans from Harlequins. So, they obviously throw the ball around. So, is it like getting two things that might not go together? Like, is it like getting a pizza and a curry in the same dinner? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because earlier I was speaking about the work that Dean Richards had done at Harlequins and how he, like, laid the foundations, like a set piece, being hard, being abrasive, being really tough. And we needed that. Like, international rugby just demands that. You go back to the 2019 World Cup final. That was a, that was a final one in the scrum. So no matter how you want to play, if you don't have that tough, hard edge, which has been one of the founding pillars of English rugby and our DNA for as long as I can remember, you need that. But 
to take the game on, to take it to the next level, to be able to be the best, to beat the best, you need to be able to, I think, show more in attack. And that's where Nick Evans comes in. Like Harlequins play a particular way. And for me, bringing the, the, the two together, Borthwick and Nick Evans, you're creating this melting pot where you have to find a common ground and a sense of synergy. And if you can compromise, like I don't think Ingram want to play like Harlequins in their own half, but I do think they'd love to play like Harlequins in the opposition half. And in order to do that, I think the first thing you've got to do is you've, you've got a group that have been together for a long period now, eight years or so, since 2015, that have probably played in a certain way. So you need to almost strip that down, remove that out of their kind of uh, muscle memory to then think a total different way to which they've been able to think. And we've not seen loads of evidence. I thought we saw green shoots of it against uh, Wales away with some of the launch play, but we're not seeing enough. And I think, once again, it's that annoying thing which you're asking people to do is to be patient because attack takes time. For us at Harlequins, we didn't develop that in seven weeks. You know, <laughs> you, know you develop that over a, a number of years to get to play that way. But the speed of ball as well, England had against Ireland in that first half at times was frightening. Like, is like I know you were saying they're going to try and exit from their own half and then create this speed of ball in the opposition half, but. Can you do that? I know they started with two Lange and Slade, but could you do that with a four with a Ford Farrell or a Smith Farrell combo? Yeah. Or... Yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. We're talking about loads of coaches talk about it, speed over shape. Everyone in attack is trying to create speed, um quick ball. No one does it better than France in the twenty two. I think they're averaging like two point one seconds per ruck. I mean that's lightning fast. Once you get quick ball, you need to understand what you're doing with it. For me, all bets are off once you've got quick ball. You're just playing what you see. You're not worrying about, oh, but you need to be here. And Of course, having a structure and a shape helps in terms of people's understanding and how comfortable they feel in certain situations. But when you've got lightning quick ball and you've got defences retreating, you're on top of them. You need to be relentless and keep playing on top of them. So that for Mac Hansen, what does that look like to Mac Hansen? He's not looking at shape. He's just looking at fixing defenders, either shifting the ball into, into space to create opportunities for other players, or he's taking people on. Like You can overanalyze and overthink it, but what essential I'm talking about is instinctive rugby. And if you have that freedom to just play on instinct, when you create quick ball, then I think you've become a really dangerous side. Yeah, I agree, I agree. But I think a big decision as well is if you're, if you're going with the two playmakers 10 and 12, is do you use Slade's left leg then for your exits? Are you using Tualangi or, well, potentially Ollie Lawrence has been 12 there and Farrell 13. But are you getting that power runner in the centres to get the quick ball or Slade for the exit plays? What are you kind of doing, isn't it? Well, it's good to have those options, isn't it? But in order to get speed of ball, so if we think of A, B and C, like you need to win a confrontation. You need to, so that's A. B is getting quick ball, and then C is playing to space. You can't get to C without doing A and B. So how you create your team? So you can have a backline full of ball players, but no 
no one that can run into traffic and give you quick ball. Yeah. So you're thinking about C without doing A and B. So that's why you need this composition of a team that has the ability to be able to go through the front door and just batter it down, but then have players, once that bit's done, to be able to exploit space, execute and score tries. Every good team has that ability to do all of that. And you see that with Ireland. You know, you see that whether it's Doris or Conan or Pito Marnikarin or Tyke Vernon or Sheehan, but they can do all of that, but they can also do all the other bits when they do get quick ball and they do make good decisions and they can play to space. So, yeah, having that composition and that balance within a team is so important. Who do you think are the five big names of individual players that you think are ones to watch for the World Cup coming up? What, in the Northern Hemisphere or in World Rugby? World Rugby. See, oh, Super Rugby's just rebooted and I haven't watched loads of it, but I could give you some like cliched names, couldn't I? Um, I'm really excited to see how Quay Cooper comes back, actually. You know, out of an Achilles injury for Australia, I think if he's fit, he plays. And he's just dynamite to watch, isn't he? But um, I'm biased. I'm probably going to... Actually, Ardi Surveyor, he's just wicked to watch, isn't he? I'm just going to select players that I love watching. Finn Russell, I just... It's a joy. He's a joy to watch. Antoine Dupont, I think, will go down as one of the greatest players of our generation. Like, I... It's hard to find a weakness in the dude, you know. Um, his some of his assisting against Wales at the weekend was crazy. Some of his passing, his fifty twenty two against England, his tackle on Mac Hansen. There ain't any can't do. Like he's just wild. It's absolutely wild. So I've forgotten how many players I've just listed there. I've listed one from Australia. That's four. That's four. Um, someone who will set it on fire. Okay, a lesser known name that you think will just, you know, the breakthrough player of the World Cup. Oh my gosh, you really put me on the spot there. Someone who will just break through the ranks and just. Oh. I don't know. I think you'd be, you'd probably be looking at a tier two nation then, wouldn't you? I think in the tier one nations and the obvious examples, it's, you know, you, you probably have to go back. You get moments, do you remember Nguyenu, um, who's uh, American? Yeah. 2007, yeah. You know, you, you know, 2007 when he in and outed Brian Abana. You get moments like that. And that was a breakthrough moment for him. So you're looking at those nations and often the Pacific Islanders, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, there will be someone that comes out of it like that ends up like Rupeni Fafau and Nabutha when he just just tore the world. So I can't quite answer that question because I've not watched enough super rugby to give an insight as to who might be that player to burst onto the scene. Sorry. What are your... Um, later. Huh? A rundle for England, I'd say. This could be yeah. a World Cup if he gets any bit of opportunity. Like, Yeah, Arundel's a special player. Like, he, he is a very special player. The guy's kind of likening to 
Jason Robinson. I was I, I was tempted to say um, to say him, but he's just had his first start for England. You know, um, where where he goes, I think he is a unique player that could play a big role. He will give you magic moments. He will just give you special moments, won't he? Talking of the Thomas Moore and all that, what's your thoughts on the eligibility rule that they brought in? I think it's good. It, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you've got guys like, for example, Charles Piertel, who now has the ability to go back and play for Tonga. That's great. That's really good. I think if you can reclaim some of that international experience, whether that be in playing or coaching, and of course there's no eligibility over coaching, but uh, yeah, almost import that back into the the nation of their choice. I think just makes a huge amount of sense because otherwise you've got players who could still play at international level, maybe not for the country they originally played for, but for another country that they qualify for. So if Charles Pieter can go play for Tonga at a World Cup, like we all want to see that. Like, did you see what he did playing for? Bristol against Northampton just was obscene. It's obscene. I think the world wants to see footwork and skill like that. So if it frees up players to be able to go and have that opportunity, then I'm all for it. And Hugo, in that eligibility rule, this came into my head. In the 2018 Football World Cup, there was 53 players that could have represented France. Obviously, only 23 were in the French squad and the rest were in African nations. Do you think that that eligibility rule could open up things like that where there's some African country has loads of rugby players that could bust onto the scene? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because from a footballing perspective, Jason Mourinho just said that um, if players if players who are eligible for Africa actually play for the African home nations, they could win a World Cup, I agree. Honestly, you, you look at the France, France national team, and there's a number of them who've got due nationality. Like, if they decided... You know Zinedine Zidane's Algerian? Yeah, it's mentally. You know, I mean, I'm thrilled he played for France and won a World Cup and had his face on the Arc de Triomphe. There's a million people down the Champs-Élysées in 98 when he won the World Cup. But imagine if he then... Stop getting selected for France, and a couple of years later, he could then go. Imagine impact he could have for for Algeria. You've got, and you forget in Africa, football is massive. You had Didier Drogba playing at Chelsea, winning Champions League finals, taking the winning penalties. But his impact in the Ivory Coast, he stopped a civil war. <laughs> like. Do you ever see a rugby player could do a similar thing if they decided to, like, they had a dual citizenship for, like, yeah. France and an African country or England and an African country? Do you ever think a rugby player could go down and make rugby the thing in that country? Yeah, I mean, Marrow's got, I mean, he's a British Nigerian. Anthony Watson's a British Nigerian. There's, there's a number that could absolutely do that. Yeah, of course. Um, in what capacity? I don't know. Um, It'd be great to see, like, rugby's not the number one sport in Nigeria. (laughs) It's football. We've got the Super Eagles. But there's a big Nigerian influence in this country when it comes to 
players that then go on to play for England. Um, what more can we do, including myself, retired from the game, to help grow rugby in Nigeria? We've got a London Nigerians rugby team. So there's a community of people that like love their rugby, that have heritage in Nigeria, that for one reason or another ended up in this country or their parents end up in this country and they've become dual, dual nationals. So yeah, I think I think it's a really good conversation. In fact, Maro, he put out a tweet. Um, when was it? A couple of years ago, maybe, of uh, the best British Nigerian 15 that he could find. There's some of the names on it, you're like that. Whoa. Like, it was class. He had me as team manager. I didn't even make the 15. I was dead. Like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, when you look through the list of it, you're thinking, oh, my word, like, Nigerians, country like Nigeria, where it's not even probably in the top three national, top national sports, but the influence Nigerian players have had in England is quite significant. We can't think off top for heads, but, yeah. like, would it, would it be cool to see, like, the Barbarians versus the... African Heritage 15 or something like that. Do you think it could ever right. be a thing? Oh, I'd be so up for it. How good would that be? Imagine a back three, Zebo, Watson and Monye. That'd be yeah. <laughs> deadly. <laughs> if only we had some connections in television, Yugo, to make all this happen. <laughs> I'll, uh, yeah, I don't know. Hey, next time the Lion Space of Africa, maybe we get a combined African 15, excluding... Excluding South Africa, they're well established, but oh, yeah. Zimbabwe, Kenya, Nigeria. Imagine if you could get a, an African 15. Imagine the Nigerian jersey. The Nigerian football oh, jersey is beautiful. Like. The stash would be mega. I'd come oh. out of retirement for it. I wouldn't get selected, but I'd put my hat in the ring. I look forward to that one. That'd be class. Great idea. Talk, talking of um, growing the game, what what are some other areas that you you think could help grow the game in a significant way? It's a really good conversation, and it's one that World Rugby take really seriously. Um, we've had a few what they call shape of the game conferences. We had one in November where we had all the international coaches from around the world: were Ian Foster, Eddie Jones, Michael Checker, Jacques Ninabar just to mention a few, Fabian Gautier. Um, and then there was one maybe a month ago and we meet on a regular basis. In fact, today we had, yeah, your all those coaches in the room with World Rugby, with referees. So we have all these workshops and we're focused on the shape of the game, what it looks like today, whether that's law, broadcasting, fan engagement. There's so much, I'm not sure how much I'm actually allowed to say, but it's such a big topic and it's something which all the major stakeholders, tournament organisers, owners, Six Nations, Rugby Championships, Super Rugby, World Cup, of course, they come together and collaborate. There's a real sense of collaboration and some of the suggestions are, are absolutely brilliant because the game on the pitch and the product is absolutely fantastic. But you always want to be answering the question of what else can we do? What more can we do? How can we make it more digital? I don't know. And, you know, you can't, it's quite hard to compare some sports, but you see what F1 have done with Drive to Survive Six Nations, of course, have got a Netflix documentary coming out. 
Um, but I, I look at the bravery and some of the decisions that other sports have made. So Tommy Fury fought Jake Paul a few weeks ago. And loads of people are like, ah, oh, what is this? It's rubbish. The amount of kids saying, are you watching the boxing match at the weekend? I know so many people that couldn't care less about boxing that paid pay-per-view to watch that fight. And it was just a brilliant example of how they attracted this brand new audience of people who never watch boxing, know nothing about it. They don't know whether they're great boxers or, or not. And in fact, it was kind of irrelevant. They loved the hype, sports entertainment, and that's what it was. And they produced this brilliant contest. Like the fight was pretty crap, actually. But it's irrelevant. They've captured a whole new sector of the public that now engaging and talking about boxing. I know exactly what you're saying, Hugo. You want the rugby guy versus Jake Paul. <laughs> Imagine Jared. The thing is, Jared would take the fight. <laughs> he, would, he would actually take the fight. I'm not sure if Jake Paul would take the fight, not because he's scared, but he's just about making money, isn't he? He'd fight anyone if he could make money. But yeah, that would be great. But uh, yeah, so like what, like how do you think rugby could create more events like that? Like what do you, like what's your hot take? What's the big one you have? For me, rugby is an event. International rugby is an event. I look at Six Nations live match day experiences we should be looking at the same as i go to ascot every year okay yeah i don't love horse racing but i go and i get dressed up i have a few beers i hang out with people and there's been loads of conversation like clive woodward did an article twickenham has become the biggest pub in england people go because they want a great day out like, is the rugby intellect there for everyone across the 80,000 in the stands? No, but they're full. They're full every weekend. And we get obsessed at times, I speak for myself, broadcasts about the, the product on the pitch. And of course, that's really, really important. But we can't influence or impact how England want to play on Saturday, how Ireland are going to play. What we can impact and influence is everything we wrap around the sport. So at the stadium, what are we doing? Harlequins do a brilliant job with the big game. My word, they sell out 15,000 every week at the Stoop and then they take the game to Twickenham and they can sell out 82,000. How? How have they found another 65 plus thousand supporters? It's not just the rugby. It's because you got Craig David there. It's because you got Faithless there. It's because you turn the West, um, the West car park at Twickenham into this... Um, event where you can go and you've got rides and entertainment it's everything, it's the entertainment aspect where they're able to reach out to so many people and because they get so many people into it maybe not your diehard rugby fans but they come and have a great day out and they may want to come again so I think rugby for the majority of us that don't play the game should look at it as a day out and as entertainment and what more can we do to provide greater entertainment services for people that come in to just sit and, and enjoy it? Do you yeah, think, I agree 100%. Do you think that rugby could take some of what the American Super Bowl does and has the halftime show and things like that? 100%, but 
I know you'll have the traditionalists go, oh, we don't need it. Well, that's fine because it's not for you. But you just watch the rugby. But there's loads of people, by the way, that really, really want that. And it's everyone whinges about stuff that that they don't like, and and, and that's fine. But if you don't like the half time, like um, entertainment, go to the bar. Like it's fine. But I'm telling you, there's loads. Imagine if you had Rihanna performing half time at the World Cup. Imagine. I, I promise you, one thing's guaranteed: people will be complaining. Oh, why is she doing that? I'm here for the rugby. Well, then enjoy the rugby. But for everyone else that wants to enjoy Rihanna, let let them also enjoy Rihanna. And by the way, the, the only reason they may have bought a ticket is for the 15 minutes at half time, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. That's no problem. But the Super Bowl have been able to, through their viewing figures, is one of the most watched sports events on the planet, it's become the self-filling prophecy. Do you know everyone that's done a halftime Super Bowl performance has never been paid? So yeah. Rihanna doesn't get paid to do it. In fact, it costs her millions of pounds of her own money and a recording company's money to perform at the Super Bowl because they know, because of the audience that the Super Bowl provides, so she went straight to number one streaming on Spotify, sold loads of more records. You da, 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 da. She makes money, but it cost her money. When naturally you think, well, the Super Bowl, how many million pounds are they pay Rihanna? Nothing. They give her an opportunity for her to market herself. So rugby needs to work back to front. We need to be, we need to be able to grow the audience so we get millions of people, and I'm talking big numbers of people that are watching the game, engaging the game, to be able to invite the likes of Rihanna. Rita Ora opened up the rugby, the Women's Rugby World Cup down in New Zealand. That's wicked. That's great. So I think we've stepped out of an era whereby previously some of these suggestions, people would have said, oh, well, we can't do that. We've never done that. And I think we're absolutely probably in a place now where people are saying, why not? Like, why not? Like yeah. We need to be a digital sport like other sports are. Bring in the opportunities. Yeah, please. Yeah, I think that's a big thing where rugby can improve, make it more digitised and bring in these events around the match itself. Because I, I obviously love the match itself. I'll go that. I'm one of the purists, but I 100% will love the concert as well, you know. But I think we could also engage more markets. Like, I think... I have this theory about the Six Nations. You know, the way it's uh, obviously ring fence at the moment, Georgia, Spain, all these teams can't get into it. I think every four years, all the European, the top 12 European nations should play each other. Every team play each other, have a league. And after that four years, the six teams at the top are the Six Nations for the next four years. Would that bring in Spain, Germany, Georgia? They'd have something to play for. What do you think, Hugo? Yeah, I think you need a second tier of strong, competitive international rugby. You need to provide opportunity for Romania, for Spain, um, um, Georgia, as you've mentioned, where they can really compete. And to get to that point of what you're talking about, you need to create competitive fixtures for tier two. So for Georgia to get better, because there's no point Georgia coming into the Six Nations having not competed against tier one nations because the step up is just way too significant. They'd just come into the Six Nations and get battered by everyone else in the Six Nations. And then people would be saying, oh, why are they here? So if we can create a competitive tier two competition whilst giving them exposure, 
and more opportunities against Tier 1 nations. And I think you've got a real valid reason. With regards to promotion relegation, Jeopardy's like is, is massive in the sport, but I think, and it's taken a long period, hasn't it, for Italy? But they're now, I think, on the cusp of actually being way more competitive than we've ever seen. So after that level of investment, time into it, then they get to a certain point, they could be at risk of undoing all of that work and then being in a tier two and back in the exodus. But there needs to be viable routes for tier two teams to be able to harness their ambitions if they've become of equal value to tier one nations. 100%. Just to clarify, what I was saying would be like the year after the World Cup, you'd still have the Six Nations and the Euro Championship takes place. Then your three June internationals would be like Ireland versus Georgia, Ireland versus Romania, Ireland versus Spain. And then your November internationals would be Ireland versus Portugal, Belgium and Holland. And then you'd have, did we have playing 11 matches, all the best 12 teams in Europe. And then after 11 matches, you'll have your top six. Then that's the Six Nations for the following four years. So they get a chance to invest, actually see how good they can get. And then while the B nations are all trying to get back in there for four years' time. Yeah, I agree with you. The only thing is, if you had a summer, it basically you're for one year, the summer, the autumn international, you've got tier one nations playing against tier two nations. Yeah, I love it. The principle of it, yes, we're growing the game. But it doesn't grow money. Um to, to sell Ireland against Georgia respectfully is just not going to do as well as Ireland to win New Zealand. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree but, with that too. But we, we can't forever just keep chasing money. And that sounds really naive because as you've seen from the Gallagher Premiership, two clubs going to administration, as we've seen from Wales and the financial crisis they're in and some of the figures you hear around like the English game, like the, the, the game's in desperate need for money. But how do you strike the balance of providing opportunity and growing the game as well as trying to fill the pockets of, of the unions and the nations? Yeah, because I think like, they keep trying to push for bringing the USA. But I think Germany is 85 million people. Spain has 47 million people. If you could activate them, which is closer to the Six Nations, hence keep the fans all being able to travel to away matches and everything. I think, for me, that's a way to grow the game and potentially bring in more money. I know I agree exactly what you're saying about Ireland and the tour in New Zealand or versus Ireland and Georgia, but I think Spain and Germany potentially have loads of money to bring to the table in yeah. four or five years' time, you know? Agreed. And, you know, it's part of our principles, a mission statement, growing the game. Well, that's fine, but you, you, you really have to do something about it, I think. If you've just got Tier 1 nations playing against Tier 1 nations every summer, every November it then becomes a close shot. Yes, it generates more money, attracts um, TV audience, all the rest of it, but I do think there's responsibility within that World Cup cycle that teams should be touring um, to two nations, 100%. Okay. Um, so that's that's the end of the um, general questions now, Hugo. And what we what we like to do at the end of the podcast is do the fan questions quick fire, uh, just to wrap up and uh, go from there. So me and Adam, we've got the list done, and uh, we'll just read them out and uh, quick fire. So the the first question 
comes in from Raf. He says, what happens if you score a drop goal off a kickoff? Um, that would be, I think that would be scrum back on the halfway line. You've effectively kicked the ball dead. I think I'm not sure the exact rules. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that would be scrum back on the halfway line. Yeah, because you've kicked the ball dead. Well, Ryan Hogan has a more hypothetical question. If you were to pick your dream backline to play in of past and present players, you're obviously on the wing. Who are the other six boys? Jeez. Um, at nine, I mean, Antoine Dupont, just the man mayhem, chaos he causes, um, I think would be unbelievable. I'd, I'd love to play with Dan Carter at 10. 100%. Um, I, I'd want Bruno Driscoll at 13. At 12. At 12. Who would I want at 12? I'd like to have played with Marnonu. I just think that imagine Nonu and Bruno Driscoll together, the chaos they'd cause with Anton Dupont and Dan Carter. Uh, at 15, Christian Cullen. And on 11, at 11, Jonah. Darren Wallace Limerick would like to know, were, always, were Ireland always going to beat, going to have enough to beat England? Or do you think that the red card made the difference? No, I think 15 v 15, Ireland still win that game. Yeah, it, it of course had an impact on the game, just naturally. Johnny Sexton ended up finding plenty of space in the backfield. But yeah, Ireland, Ireland were always going to be England. Yeah, you had that sense. We kind of touched on this one a while ago, but Dean Malone wants to know, what's it like being captained by Paul O'Connell? I was mega. You have so much respect for him. He has such a sense of presence, such an unbelievable aura. And everything he says you believe because you know he'd do it for you. He's, you know, he's he's a brilliant, brilliant speaker, motivator, but I think his best attribute is he, he leads by his actions. Like, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, it's mad. I mean, what an honour. What an honour to be captain by him. Sam Blaken asks, pick a sevens team of your all-time best players. Uh, Rupeni Falfau. Would be on one wing. Uh, Jonah has to be. Um, I think I'd have Christian Cullen at 10, actually. Um, I've mentioned Antoine Dupont before, but used van der Vesthaven, unfortunately, he's passed away. But he, he, he used to run the 100 and under 11 seconds. And he's like six foot three as a scrum half. So I've got Eust, Christian Cullen. I've got Jonah and Valfal. What how ridiculous this team. And then in the pack, I'd have it wouldn't even have to be. I think Ardi Surveyor would be wicked, wouldn't he? 
Oh, I need to go. Oh, peer space. <laughs> How great is this team? And then I need another wicked loose forward. I'm trying to. Ugh. Jeez, these are good questions, aren't they? Um, Pierce Beast, Hardy Surveyor, and I need someone else in that mould. Uh, I can't think. Kieran Reed, Haskell. <laughs> Kieran Reed would be great. I mean, he's a World Cup winning captain. Yeah, why not? We'll stick him in there. Josh Deedy wants to know, if you were having a celebrity boxing match, who would be your chosen opponent? <laughs> Call him out. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, they're not necessarily celebrities, but because of what... It'd have to be someone from number 10. I mean, foster living crisis, global climate crisis, on the ver on the verge of a recession. We just playing Boris, Louis. Hugo versus Boris. Hey, your words, not me. I'm not trying to get political, but yeah, maybe someone from number ten. Um, it is now. From Ilbandes, he wants to know who is, in your opinion, the top three best players of all time. Jonah Lomu. Jonah Lomu. Is that number one or number three? He was my idol. Um, he's my idol. Um, oh, sorry, Jason Robinson is my seventh team. Ah. Um. Greatest rugby players of all time. Um, Richie McCaw has to be there. You know, back-to-back -back World Cups is just, just, just so ridiculously good. And then, and then Dan Carter. I've picked three All Blacks. They deserve it. Yep. Yeah. Happy for people to disagree with that. Ryan Cody wants to know, in the Yugomania movie, who will play Yugomania? Idris Elba. Big Driss. How good? How good would that be? <laughs> How good? Make it happen. <laughs> I, I, I was actually in a movie scene with Idris Elba years ago. It's like ridiculous. He was playing this sports star, Fallen from Grace. And my scene was he walked out of a he walked out, he was in a black tie, at a black tie event. He walks out and he um, <clears throat> there's a couple of pretty looking girls and they wave. And he thinks they're waving at him. And then I walk from behind him, nudge his shoulder, and they're not waving at him, they're waving at me. And then I walk off with these two girls under my arms, I promise you. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, ridiculous. Oh, I'd say we finish up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> We're not competing that here, Mr. No, <laughs> I very much doubt it. I very much doubt it. So the 
the final question we always ask the guest um, is if there was one guest that one person that you would like to see on the Champagne Rugby podcast, who would it be and why? Ooh, I'd, um, oof. wow. Oh my gosh, who would I want to hear from? Do you know who I think's just always just really class? Like, oh, I've said Ronan, I, I love Ronan guy. I think he speaks so much sense. I, I really do. Um, do you know who I think's brilliant? I've spent a bit of time with him recently, Jacques Ninaba. Mate, what a sound guy. His rugby IQ is wild. I, I think he's brilliant. Um, um, so, yeah. Sia Khaleesi is pretty cool as well. He's got unbelievable stories. Such a good bloke. Um, so, yeah, got a couple of names there. He's got. He's doing quite a lot for rugby right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a busy guy. He's doing pretty well. Yeah, good to see. Rock Nation contractor. Representing Jersey. Yeah, exactly. Boy's flying. He's flying. Anyway. It's it's been an absolute pleasure, Hugo. And if the fans they they'll know where to find you at Hugo Monnier. But is there anything else that you would uh, like to plug or shout out? Um, just to say thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed having this chat with you. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Hugo. Nice. Did all is this hour chat turned into two hours and twenty minutes? But look. <laughs> wow that is wild but no it's been wicked gents honestly thanks so much really really appreciate it it's been a pleasure catch you guys no, next week <laughs>